Well, good morning, everybody, and again, happy Mother's Day to all the moms in the room. Uh, glad you could join us today. Just want to encourage all of us, again, if you could uh, consider signing up for Olive Crest. If you're new to our church, just know one of our church's vision is we'd want to not just use resources in the city or, or use and meet in the city, but we want to be a blessing to the city, and we want to be a presence here. And serving and partnering with an organization like Olive Crest, which is a foster care agency, it's just a great way for us to really partner with the city that, that has needs. And so I really encourage and hope uh, we could be a church that signs up for that. And um, for all of our members, uh, if you could be in prayer for some of us, um, we mentioned this in our members meeting, but uh, we have elder nominees, people who are training up to be potentially elders in our church. And we're actually going flying up to Washington, D.C. this upcoming weekend. And so uh, please pray. That will be a formative time. It's a time of training, a time of us to learn together. Uh, but I've been learning more and more. Oh, please pray for our wives. Please pray for our children. Uh, they're going to be alone with the kids. And again, uh, if you could babysit, love to have you there. Uh, but otherwise, please, uh, please pray for them, and we just hope that could be a formative time. Uh, if, this, if you're new here, uh, again, welcome. We've been going through um, a sermon series through the letter of James. Uh, it's in the New Testament, and it's a letter that's unique because it's written by the, the brother of Jesus. And he's writing this letter to scattered Christians, uh, not explaining the gospel, not explaining necessarily what Christianity is, but he wants to talk about what life looks like if you believe in the gospel. What does life look like if you follow Christ? And so part, the past few weeks, that's all we've been talking about. What does suffering look like if you believe the gospel? That's James 1. What does it look like to listen and, be, and to listen to what God has to say in the gospel? What does it look like to practice community if you believe in the gospel? Um, those are all different topics that James has been hitting on. And today, uh, it's very interesting, we're going to talk about, well, what does it look like to believe the gospel? How does it look like to actually believe that Jesus is God, to follow him? And so to look at that, we're going to look at James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. If you have your Bibles, please turn to that. Or if you have your programs, it should be in the back. And again, at our church here, we believe that God is alive and he's living. And when he speaks, when we read the scriptures together. So can we all rise together as we read this passage? James chapter 2, verse 14, all the way to verse 26. So this is James writing, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works and receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. This is reading God's word. Let's all pray together before we begin. God, would your spirit just move and stir in our hearts and speak to us, O Lord, what we need to hear. May we hear, O God, primarily through the voice of James, your voice. And I just pray, O Lord, that we could be convicted in the areas that we need to. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. How many here in this room, you've seen the TV show, Friday Night Lights? Oh, disappointing. 
Hey, every, every sermon, we end with the practice. That is your practice today. Watch Friday Night Lights. It's on Netflix. You could stream it. It is like one of the greatest shows ever. Uh, it's a story about a high school football team in Texas, and you do not have to like football to watch it. I don't like football, and yet I love the show. Because if you watch this show, you realize, oh, this show is actually not really about football. It's about this community in Texas that plays football, and through their lives, you see different issues being addressed, like the topic of dysfunctional families, relationships, socioeconomic class, race. And it's a very like, deep show that I just love, and again, I hope all of you could have a chance to experience the beauty of that show. You could just watch it. Um, but when you watch it, one thing that's kind of interesting is in that show, nobody is explicitly a Christian, nobody lives Christian lives, and yet you'll occasionally see these characters participate in Christian practices. So for example, before every game, you'll see the players, they all go, let's say the Lord's Prayer together. And the team huddles and they say the Lord's Prayer. Or when somebody gets injured in the field, the whole stadium goes quiet and they're like, lift the prayer for this person. Or when they talk about things like, I'm telling the truth, they go, I promise to the Lord above. And they would just like mention God's name in that way. And if you've been part of like, you know, sports teams, you know, oh, that's kind of like football culture. People who just kind of, you know, no idea about Jesus and Christianity, but they'll just all of a sudden pray when someone's injured or before a game. And when you look at that, you're just like, what's going on there? Like, why do these folks who don't express any type of Christianity in their lives will randomly do these Christian activities? There's a book that's called The Unsaved Christian by Dean and Sarah. And he says, you know what's happening in those moments? What's happening is, in those moments, you see something called Cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is on the screen definition is it's when a person identifies as a Christian because it is a cultural norm. The reason why this happens sometimes is that certain cultures, for generations, they are Christians, and it's to the point where Christianity, it's so dominant in that culture that it shapes the values and traditions very deeply. It's like ingrained in the tradition. And because of that, a lot of people, based on your culture, you identify yourself as a Christian, you participate in Christian practices, but you actually have no relationship with Jesus. It's just something that you do. And that's why places like in Texas and Friday Night Lights, everybody, they do Christian things because they're cultural Christians. That's why in the Bible Belt, everyone, they kind of have Christian values because that's ingrained in their culture. And I think that's why a lot of people in Orange County, we do what we do too. You live in Orange County, if you have, especially if you have like an Asian American background, which a lot of us do, we're kind of like the Bible Belt, where a lot of our parents immigrated, and we found community through a Christian community, and a lot of the values became ingrained in our culture, to the point where Christianity is now a cultural norm. I mean, think about how you came to church. How did you come to church? For a lot of you, you just grew up in church. Your parents brought you to church, you grew up memorizing Bible verses, you start serving as a praise leader because you know how to play the guitar. I know one person asked him, how did you become a Christian? Tell me your story. And they're like, I was born a Christian. I said, oh, I don't think that's how it works, but okay. Like, it's like this inherited faith that people have. Or some of you, maybe that's not your background. You weren't a Christian. But then when you went to college, all of a sudden you met these nice people who went to your dorm room. And they said, you want to go out for dinner? We'll buy you a meal. By the way, before that, we have a Christian club we're going to go to. You got totally catfished and you went to this Christian club, but now it's too late because all your community, they're all nice Christians all of a sudden. They all worship, they all do Bible studies, they all pray. 
And all of a sudden, you, to, get, to fit in, to get along, you start doing that too. You start praying. You start going on mission trips. You start joining a small group. Because of all your campus ministry friends. It's the cultural norm. Or maybe you're older now and you have kids and you want your kids to be moral. You want your kids to experience family values, to experience like those good camp moments and church moments that you did when you were a young kid. And so you send them to church, you send them to a private Christian school because that's a good thing to do. And when you do that enough, what's happening is you're actually practicing cultural Christianity without realizing it. Because your faith it's based far more upon your culture than your convictions. It's way more about your culture and what you inherited than the convictions and what you believe. How do you know if you are a cultural Christian? Do you know if you're a cultural Christian? How do you know your faith is based more upon your culture than your beliefs? James talks about this problem. James talks about it because it happened in early church. And James tells us It depends not whether or not you have faith, but the key question is, what type of faith do you have? What kind of faith do you have? Because you can say you believe. You can actually believe what you believe, and you can agree with everything about Christianity. I agree with all of this, but it is still possible that your faith is not a real faith. Sam Mulberry, he's a pastor and an author. He says it like this on the screen. He says, quote, here is the truth that should give you and me pause. It is possible to claim and to believe you possess genuine saving faith when in fact you do not. It is possible, in other words, to believe you have things sorted with God that you will not face as judgment, that there is hope for you beyond the grave and yet remain under the judgment of God. It is possible, in short, unknowingly, to possess counterfeit faith. So first of all, happy Mother's Day to all of us here. I know this is, uh, for those of you who've been going to church for a while, this might be kind of a hard message, uh, but I didn't plan this. We were going through James, and we just happened to land here today. Uh, but I think, again, it's, it's meant to be a hard message for us to pause and to pay attention, to examine ourselves. And if you're new to church or you're exploring the faith, this is actually really helpful. Because I know for a lot of us here, one reason we don't like the church is you see a lot of people who live so contrary to what they profess. And James, he's probably talking a lot to you, going, let me tell you why that happens. Let me tell you what's going on there. Because it could be that for us, we need to answer these questions. What does it mean to have faith, a faith that's real? What does it look like to have real faith? How do you know if you have a counterfeit faith? And that's going to be the three things to talk about. Number one, recognizing real faith. Secondly, identifying false faith. And lastly, living by true faith. So recognizing real faith, identifying false faith, living by true faith. First, recognizing real faith. Back when I was a kid, I had a friend. He sold me a fake Michael Jordan rookie card for $20. I saved it. It's in a plastic. I still have it. Is it worth anything today? It's fake. Of course not. It's worth nothing. For some reason, I still have it. It's just kind of stored away, locked away in this plastic sieve, and I'm just kind of there having it take up space. But it's worth nothing. I can't sell it for anything. And James tells us there's a type of faith that's like that Michael Jordan rookie card, where it's not worth anything because it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It doesn't save you. Verse 14, look what James says again. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? James is telling us, oh, if you have, there's a type of faith that you can have that doesn't really mean anything. 
And he kind of contrasts this whole message saying there's a faith that actually does what it's supposed to do, which is to save you. And James tells us what type of faith that is. You need a faith, if it's valuable, a faith is something that has works. It's something that you do things with. And that's throughout the whole passage. Verse 17, look at that verse. James says, in the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, it's dead by itself. In verse 20, look what James says again. Are you willing to learn that faith without works, it's useless? And here's the most controversial, verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if you grew up in the church, this sounds very confusing because it sounds like James contradicted everything you learned in youth group, in college, and even in our church. Because what do we say as a church? We believe, as Protestant Christians, we are saved by faith alone. We can't make ourselves right with God, so God did something for us. The gospel tells us God sent his son to live the life we should have lived, to die the death that we should have died. And if you just trust in that, if you place your faith in that, you are saved. You have a right relationship with God. And the reason why is because passages like Romans chapter 3, verse 28. If you look on the screen, look how it's broken down. The apostle Paul, he wrote Romans, and he says, A person is justified by faith and not by works of the law. That's a quote. And yet here in this passage, in James, look what it says. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What in the world? What is going on here? If you're, again, skeptical, if you're exploring Christianity, you go, I knew it. I told you. The Bible is full of contradictions. It's all these writers thousands of years apart. It's not consistent. Finally, a pastor acknowledges this. That's how some of us believe. Or if you grew up in the church, what do we do with this? Just ignore it. Ah, just brush it off. Whatever. I don't know how to make sense of that. And we just kind of don't really pay attention to what James is saying. And so what is, what's going on here? Like, what, what's happening with this tension? Is the Bible is it saying two different things? Is James teaching a different type of gospel than Paul? Did all of our pastors like, lie to us? And let me, there's so much that we could say about this, um, but let me just propose two things to talk about this tension. Number one is uh, James and Paul, they are not contradicting each other, or it's hard to believe that because they know each other. Sometimes when you read these letters, you think, oh, this person is far away, this person is far away, they're writing from distant lands, years, years apart, and just writing things that you don't know if they're complimenting each other. Uh, But we know from the Bible that, no, no, James and Paul, they were both real people, and they really knew each other, they were aware of each other, in fact, they even worked together. Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, 19, the apostle Paul wrote this. And look what Paul says in in Galatians. He says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, which is the apostle Peter, and remained with them 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So Paul's like, oh, I know James. That guy who wrote this letter, yeah, I know who he is. In fact, in the book of Acts chapter 11, they're working together. They're like co-partners. In Acts chapter 15, there's like this big theological debate and they land on the same page. Like, yeah, this is what we should do as a church. It'd be like if Pastor Sam comes up and he says something, and then I come up and I preach and I say something, and they sound a little bit different. You could think, oh my gosh, there's division in this church. Sam and Tom, they don't agree. What's going on? It must be really awkward. That's one possibility. Or it could be we're just saying the same thing in different ways. And it's because, dude, me and Sam, we know each other. I just saw him last night. We just hung out the whole night. I see him all the time. I see him almost as much as my wife. It'd be really strange if all of a sudden I said something totally different than what Sam believed. 
And that's kind of what's going on with James and Paul. They, they know each other. And so it'd be really strange if they're saying something differently. So what is going on here? Uh, secondly, James and Paul, I think they're actually answering two different questions. Uh, for five minutes, put on your nerd hat. Just give me five minutes just to geek out for just a little bit. Uh, there's Paul, when he writes his letters, he is answering this question. How can I be right with God? And Paul's answer is not by your works. There's nothing you could do. James, that's not the question he's answering. It's not how can I be right with God, but James is asking, how do I know that I'm right with God? And James says, it's by your works. Imagine you go out to lunch with a friend. And as you go out to lunch with a friend, it's a nice lunch. And when the bill comes, your friend says, I got it. Puts his credit card on the, on the tab. The person takes it. The waiter comes back, signs the receipt, and your lunch is paid for. How did your debt for that lunch get removed? Paul would say, oh, it's your friend. It's when he put the credit card. Your friend, he removed the debt. Versus, how do you know, though, that that actually happened, that your friend paid for it? James would be like, oh, the receipt. Look at the receipt. And that's what's going on here. Paul is talking a lot about the transaction of the credit card. James is saying, let's look at the receipt. Let's talk about that receipt and what it looks like. Nerd cap off. Thank you for tolerating that. James and Paul, they're not contradicting each other. They are complimenting each other. And the reason why I say this is not just so we could be theological for a moment, but you really need both of their perspectives to understand faith. You really need to. Uh, John Lynn, he's a pastor in New York, and he says something that I thought was really insightful when he says, do you realize in order to look at anything, to fully see what you're actually seeing, do you realize you always need two perspectives? And he's being literal here. You need your right eyeball and you need your left eyeball. You need both. Every time you look at any object, you're using both because when you're using both of your eyes, what's happening? They call it binocular vision. You're seeing it with two eyes, and what's happening is it creates this three-dimensional idea, this three-dimensional perspective. It creates depth. You could see how close they are, how far they are, because you have both eyes. But if you only have one eye, what happens? You can't see the depth of the image. You can't see it being in the three-dimensional way. Your sight is impaired. You need both eyes in order to fully see something. To only have one eye, you're not fully seeing it. And this is why we need to listen to both what James and Paul have to say about faith. James is the right eye. Paul is the left eye. One person who's much smarter than us hundreds of years ago, he summarized James and Paul like this. Quote, he says, We are saved by faith alone, Paul, but not by a faith that remains alone, James. Cut that in half or isolate only one of them, you get into trouble. You don't understand how faith works, and your faith looks a little bit wonky. You need both to have a full vision of what the Bible is talking about when it talks about faith. Otherwise, your view of faith remains very shallow, and you don't really get it. And here's the question for us. When you look at faith, are you using both eyes? Have you only been taught how to use one eye? Some of you, you grew up in a church Christian context, emphasizing faith through the eyes of Paul. It's not wrong, that's the only emphasis that's there. And you know you are living like that because your life reveals it. Ah, so I need to worship God, not today. The beach looks nice, and that becomes your calendar, your lifestyle. Oh, yeah, I got kind of crazy on the weekends, but, you know, you you just get crazy sometimes. Yeah, you know, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, like, we do things together we probably shouldn't do, but you know what? I'm a Christian. And it's by grace alone. It's by faith. So even though, yeah, I mess up, I'm good. 
because thank God God loves me. And again, you think that because you, that's been what you taught. Faith alone. So you're forgiven. You're justified forever. It's like if you're an NBA player, you have a guaranteed contract. No matter how you play, no matter what happens, the contract's guaranteed and you're good. So you could just sit out games and it's all good because that's the way you've been looking at faith. Some of you, you're different. You came from that more Asian-American guilty context where it's like, hey man, you have to make sure that you look at faith through the eyes of James. Pretty much, don't just believe, you better obey. You better obey. And your life shows that's how you live your faith. You didn't go to church on Sunday. You got messed up the past weekend. You did something with your boyfriend, girlfriend you shouldn't do. And now you're not sure if you're a Christian. Now you're not sure what's going on. Now you're not sure if God loves you. You're like an NBA player with a non-guaranteed contract. You get cut at any moment. And that's how a lot of us, the context we grew up with. That's why our life plays out the way it does. But imagine, imagine taking that scenario and applying it to a marriage relationship. Imagine you are married and you try to live that out. What will your marriage look like? I'm married, but man, I, can't help, I like girls. I just talk to girls all the time. I flirt with them all the time. Because, you know, I just love the bachelor life. I love being a bachelor. I, I don't see my wife often because I go on trips all the time. But that's okay. She loves me. Thank God she always forgives me. That's, that's kind of weird, right? Or imagine the other scenario. I'm married and I can't mess up. I bring her flowers. I bring her on dates. Because if I don't, she's going to break up with me. If I don't, it's over. What's going on with both of those marriage scenarios? The problem is both marriages don't understand how marriage really works. It is, you don't see the depth, you don't see the commitment, you don't see what a covenant with a spouse really is. And a similar way, James would say that's how it is with faith. If you have a type of faith where you say, you know, I know God sent his son to sacrifice himself so that I can have a relationship with God, but you know, I'm just going to live the way I, I can live, and thank God he forgives me. Something is really off with that type of faith, according to James. Conversely, if you say, you know what, God sent his son to die for my sins, and so, oh my gosh, my sins are still, I can't believe I keep doing it, God must reject me. Paul would say, man, what's, that's actually not an accurate view of faith either. Your view of the cross is not too high, it's far too low. God sacrificed his son to be in relationship with you. How could you just keep going the way you used to go? Or conversely, how could you think God would abandon you so quickly? When your faith causes you to live one of these ways, it could be you're just looking at one eye. And so a quick question for us. This is something for all of us. We should all pause and examine ourselves for a bit. Because all of us, we lean one way more than the other, including myself. Some of you, you've been looking at faith your whole life through the eyes of James. And when you do that, where it's all about obedience only, Jesus, he's not beautiful, he's burdensome. It's a very burdensome thing to be a Christian. And for those of us here where most of your faith, most of your Christian relationship with God, it's all about feeling guilty and burdensome. Can I just remind you real briefly? The gospel says you're not workers of the kingdom. It doesn't call you workers. Because if you're a worker, what does a worker do? You work and you get the wages that you deserve. You are called heirs of the kingdom. You know what an heir is? They inherit. When you inherit something, you get something not because of what you've done, but what someone else did for you. You're heirs of the kingdom. Let that be sink into your heart where it's not what you do, but someone else has given something to you. But for others of us, 
if you're looking at faith always through the eyes of Paul, where your relationship with Jesus, it's not perfect, but at the same time, you know that, and it's like, yeah, it's no big deal. Just know if that's kind of what's happening, where you always shrug, going, well, you know, I'll just go to church next week, or, you know, whatever, yeah, I'll just confess my sins, and it's all good. You should really pause. James would say, you got to really pause, OC. You got to really pause, Asian American Christian. You got to really pause, VBS kid, person who's living on your faith by the altar call. Because it can very well be that your faith is not as real as you presume it to be. Why does this happen? How do we kind of just hold on to this faith that's not real? And that leads to the second point, identifying a false faith. What causes us to have a faith that where it's only one eye, where it's only holding on to in a way that's not genuine. And James, he actually gives us uh, two reasons and he gives us two different descriptions of those reasons for how faith, like what kind of faith is it that's not really real? The first one is this. Some of us believe in a faith that's simply based on what we say. Uh, if you look at verse 15 to 17, look what James writes. For brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? Imagine I, ask, I message you going, hey man, remember that thing I mentioned on Sunday about babysitters? Can you babysit for me? And you're like, you know, I have a free morning, but I just, hey, I'll pray for you. I pray someone does it. Dude, that's messed up. I'm like, man, what the heck? By the way, this is not a guilt trip, so don't, for all of you who I asked, don't feel guilty. We have things to do, I know. But imagine if that happens, uh, what thou show is, oh, like you're, you're trying to pretend like you care, but you really don't care. Like, I'll pray for you. I hope God provides something for you. And James saying that's what's happening here. Imagine a Christian encounters somebody who's in need. This Christian understands because he sees this person is in need. He's able to provide what the person needs, and yet he chooses to do nothing. This is the equivalent of us telling people, oh, let me know if you need anything, without meaning it. Hope that goes okay for you. Or the popular one, thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Why does James use this as an example of a false faith? It's because for James, you can tell what somebody, how sincere they are, not by what they say, but what they do. Uh, there's a New York, New York University professor. She um, uh, taught, you know, promotes like, public education, public education. She tweeted something. She said, uh, the best choice is your local public school to send your kids. It welcomes everyone. It unifies community. It is the glue of democracy, public schools. So imagine the outrage when people discovered she sent both of her sons to a private school. It's like, oh, okay, I see. I could tell how genuine is that tweet? How real is that, right? And Jesus is saying something similar about us. It's easy for anyone to say, yeah, I follow Jesus. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, for sure. But James says, you know what's really going to show how genuine that is, is how do you live your life? Oh, you believe, that, you believe what Jesus says, that he's God? You believe what he says about forgiveness, about money, about sexuality, about community? How do you spend your money? Do you really believe what Jesus says about that? How do, how do you practice uh, sexuality? Is it consistent with what Jesus is saying? How do you practice community? How do you practice forgiveness? That tells you a lot more about what you're actually really, what you're really genuine about versus simply what you say. And here's the second thing James points out. It's not just some of us believe in a faith that's just on what you say, but secondly, is some of us believe in a faith that's just based on what you believe, just what you know. Verse 18 and 19, look what James says. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe God is one? Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Let's, uh, there's so much to say, but that one phrase, you believe God is one. That phrase, actually, is not just a throwaway phrase. This phrase comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is uh, called the Shema. It is the Jewish creed, where pretty much, if you're a Jew, this is your John 3.16. This is where twice a day, you would say God is one. It's almost like a Christian today saying, I believe in the Trinity. I believe Jesus is God. I believe in the gospel. I believe in the Nicene Creed. And James will look at you saying, that's awesome. You're in the exact same situation as demons. You're just like the demons. Jonathan Edwards, he's a Puritan writer. He talks about how, do you realize that if demons are real, they attended the greatest seminary in the universe. They, were, they saw heaven. They saw God. And they could describe God better than any theologian today. Every single demon is a monotheist. Every single demon is a Trinitarian. And the demons, not only do they believe this, they, they respond to it. They shudder. They shake. They shake at the idea of who God is. And yet you can have all this information that you know, that you believe, and that you even agree with, and yet you're a demon. Nothing better than a demon. Because all that information does nothing with your life. That's what James is saying. That's what a couple examples of false faith for him. How do you know, Christian, if you have a false faith like this? And here's a very simple answer. In your life, it looks just like everybody else's life in the world. The problem is while you profess and believe in Christianity, you're being formed by something else. You have a lot of information, but something else is forming you. And it's not because of a lack of content. There's so much content out there that's out in the Christian world, but there's something about us every single day that's being formed in a certain way where it's so contrary to what we profess to believe. You remember last week, if you were here, I showed you guys a chart. This chart here is how we, how we grow, how we change. You grow through teaching, but not just teaching. Practice what you learn in community by the power of the Spirit. It's a theory, but it's a helpful theory to see, oh, this is how I grow. This is how I change. But if you don't do this, don't think you're at neutral. Don't think nothing happens to you. Because I showed this before, but what happens if you just don't do this? Something else happens to you. Next, you believe in stories. Stories are out there all in the culture, telling you what's the best life for you, what's good choices, how to life hack. You believe in these stories that are out there, and it just comes at you. And what happens is, as a result of that, you have habits. You don't think about these habits. They just happen. Things you do every single day without thinking. And in light of that, you are surrounded by relationships. People who reinforce those habits, who reinforce those stories. And all of this is happening in an environment. The OC, the suburbs, LA, wherever you are. And what's happening is, all this together, it is forming you in a certain way to look like a certain person to have a perspective of happiness, a perspective of what the purpose of life is, and all you have to do for that to form you is wake up tomorrow. Just wake up and do your normal thing. Even though you're here at church at this moment, you are being formed every single day by the cultural currents that are out there. John Tyson, in his book, A Beautiful Resistance, he says, if this is the case, this explains why, for some reason, Christians today... Our lives look very much similar to our neighbors' lives, those who don't profess they're Christians. Today in this culture, people have never been more tired, exhausted, overworked. Busyness is such a big key word that people are talking about. Like, we're so busy. We're so tired. Everybody's overworked. 
Work-life balance. We need work-life balance. And when I look at the church and Christians, we're exactly the same. We're just as busy. We're just as tired. It was not always like this. This is a unique cultural moment where Christians and people are tired, and yet we are just like the rest of the world. In a culture where never more has it been more polarizing on social media, talking about politics. Do Christians, have you ever been on Christian Twitter? Like go on Twitter and just follow five Christians. It is discouraging. Like it is just as polarizing, just as angry. Lo and behold, it's just like the culture. In a culture where it's more sexualized than ever because we believe in this idea of sex without commitment, there's a statistic that's kind of well-known where I think about 80 to 90% of people in the culture today, they engage in sex without marriage, and it's just kind of a normal thing. They compare to Christians, exact same statistic, about 85%. Exact same thing. Again, 40 years ago, that was not the case. Something happened where the, the sexual revolution just totally radically, radically changed the culture, and the church is following suit. Because for us, we are simply, for a lot of times, professing, and even believing, but we are being shepherded by the world. And that, makes us, that should make us pause and make us ask ourselves a question. Would your life look any different if Jesus were not alive? I was asking our elder trainees to, uh, a few weeks ago, we are talking about that. We are like, you know, if, G- if, if Jesus wasn't alive or if Christianity was not real, would your life look any different and all of us had to really pause about that. Because for a lot of us, I feel like, in, especially in the OC, our life will look pretty similar. Maybe Sundays, instead of being here, you might be at the beach. But like your Monday to Saturday, yeah, it's pretty same. Like, you know, work is the same. Vacation as much as you still vacation. Marriage is the same. The friendships you find are the same. You might still be serving, but it's like the YMCA now. Like, it's all kind of the same. And the reason why, because a lot of us, without realizing it, our faith, man, it's a lot more shaped by the culture around us than by conviction. And we're just kind of like settling there. We're just kind of content with that. And James, he's kind of pointing that out for us. And that leads to now the last point, which is, well, what does it look like to live by true faith? What does true faith look like? How do you know, like in the midst of all this, you know, fake faith, not genuine faith, like what is... True faith. How do, you, how do you know that you have that? And James, he has a very simple answer. You know how you know you have true faith? You can see it. You can see the faith. Oftentimes when we think about faith, we think of it's a brain thing. Something in your brain, something internal, something personal, something private. James, though, he's like, no, 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 no. If real faith, you can, it's, it's, like, it's like calories. You can't see calories, but you will see what it does to your body. You will see it. And James says the same thing. If you have faith, you will see that faith in your life. And to support this, he gives two examples from the Old Testament. Story of Abraham, story of Rahab. Abraham, verses 21 and 24, look what he says. He says, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works and offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was credited him as righteousness. Notice James, he doesn't focus in on Genesis chapter 12 where God first comes to Abraham and Abraham believed, nor does it happen in Genesis 15 where God makes a covenant with Abraham. What does James focus on? Genesis 22, when Abraham sacrifices his son Isaac before God stopped him. And James goes, that's the receipt right there. How do you know he believes? Look at that. You could see it. James is doing something with his faith. James, that's how you see faith. Story of Rahab, look what he says in verse 25. 
In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending out by a different route? A lot of us may not know the Rahab story. Book of Joshua, what happened was the Israelites came into the city of Jericho. The king of Jericho was like, oh, there's Israelites. Let's go find them. These spies are walking around trying to hide Rahab. She's a prostitute. She goes, come, hide with me. She hides them away. And she tells them, the reason why I'm hiding you all is because I heard that you guys were coming. I heard the stories of God. And everyone actually heard of it. And so that's why I'm hiding you. Because I know God's going to bring you into this land. Everybody in the land heard of this God. One person decided to do something about it. Rahab. And James goes, that's the receipt. You see her faith. It's not something just internal, but it's actually something that you can see. And the most interesting part about all this is why these two stories does, Abraham, does James bring up, Abraham and Rahab? It's because these two characters, extreme examples, polar end. If you look on the slide here, Abraham is a patriarch. Someone we all know, Father Abraham. Rahab is a prostitute, complete opposite. Abraham is a major biblical figure. Rahab, most of us never even heard of her. Abraham, he's a Jewish man. Rahab, a foreign woman. Abraham, respectable. Rahab, not so much. Abraham, he met God directly. Rahab, he heard God. She heard God indirectly. And yet, even though that's both their situations, the one thing they have in common is they have the same type of faith, the faith that you can see. Doesn't matter if you're a PK who grew up in the church and knows all the creeds in your life, nor if you're that pagan kid who grew up smoking, drinking, doing all the bad things that your parents told you not to do. What makes your faith real is the same. Can you see it? Can you see your faith? For James, this is the test. Can you look at the faith in your life where it's not just internal? And the reason why James says this is when you can see the faith, you know what that indicates about your faith? It's alive. Your faith is alive when you can see it. My brother-in-law, he studies, uh, he studied marine biology. So I am so annoying to him because I have a fish tank that I keep talking about. And I ask him like the most random questions about fish and fish tanks. Uh, and one time I remember texting him like, cause I have a betta fish. The betta fishes are those fighting fishes. And like betta fish, like my betta fish was like not moving. And I was looking at it. I'm just like, what in the world? Like, why is my betta fish like not moving? And I texted my brother-in-law going, hey, how do you know when your betta fish, if it's dead or not? And he made me feel so stupid. He was like, uh, is it moving? And that's, that's all. And he was telling me, like, oh, it's because you know, betta fish, sometimes because they are always in those small boxes at the fish store, when you put them in a big aquarium, they just don't know what to do. So they're just kind of living in that confined space. If they're not moving much, they're just kind of like, you know, lethargic, it might be sick. But if it's like not moving at all, like no gills, no fins, nothing, it's probably dead. It's probably dead. And this is what James is saying about your faith. Your faith is like a betta fish. You know it's alive when it's moving, when you see it moving, when you see it working through you. Verse 26, look how James ends it. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. How do you, how do you see your faith moving How do you see your faith being alive? And let me just offer you a very practical way to understand that. Your faith is alive when it causes you to do something you would never naturally do. Where your personality, your Enneagram, your Myers-Briggs, it goes all against what you're about to do and yet you still do it. That's how you know something's happening in your life. Abraham, if his test was, hey, offer this goat to the Lord, 
No problem for Abraham. Everybody offered goats to the Lord back then. Abraham, he was a pagan worshiper before he met Yahweh. Offer Isaac, your son? That takes faith. Because Abraham would never do that. Rahab, she had lived for herself her whole life. She lived a lowly life, a pagan life. But all of a sudden to risk her life to save these Israelites, she would never normally do that. What's going on there? That's faith. In a similar way, your faith is alive, not when you do things and the things you normally do, but it moves you to do things you don't normally do. You know, I read, I read my Bible a lot. So I try to get you all to read your Bible a lot. I'm like, read the Bible, man. And, you know, some people could look at that going, wow, Tom, that's very spiritual. Just now, I don't think it's that spiritual for me. You know why? I'm an English major. I always read. If it wasn't my Bible, I'll be reading something else. The Bible reading comes kind of easy to me. And I don't say that in a prideful way. That's just kind of my natural bent. There's not much faith moving, in my opinion, when I read my Bible as regularly as I do. But you know what I am? Even though I'm a reader, I am a hardcore introvert. My happy place is I'm by myself, reading my Bible, alone, just kind of there. And yet I can't explain why sometimes I feel so moved to meet with people to invite them to my home, to share a meal. And it's even weirder, I enjoy those times. Like, I genuinely enjoy having people over. What's going on there? That is so contrary to how I'm built. Maybe that's faith moving. I don't mind serving. Again, like a lot of you, I just grew up serving in different places, serving at school, serving my home, serving at church. It's very normal. So if you ever see me like moving chairs, just know I would have done that at the YMCA. It's all good. But, you know, naturally, I'm the, not the most optimistic person. I tend to like, yeah, this is going to end up badly. That's like my mentality type of thing. I play out all the scenarios. And yet, for some reason, there's moments in like our staff meetings or with our church where I'm like, wow, God, God is good. There's a lot of good things going on. Again, that is not normal me. And when I look at those moments, I'm like, what is going on there? Again, maybe something's moving. And in a similar way for you, your faith comes alive. Your faith, you know it's moving when it causes you to do things where, yeah, you normally would not do that. Some of you, it is Bible reading. You've never read anything since high school. And even then, it was the cliff notes. And if for some reason, something's moving in you to, you know, I got to read this. I want to know the living God. It just draws me to do that. Some of you, it's like community. We're like, you know, I have my friends. Dude, I have my friends. I have my circle. And yet something's just stirring me to like engage people who I don't know, to welcome them. That might be your faith moving. Or some of you, it's generosity. Like, man, money is your security. You came from a home where it's all about not having money. So you save, 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 save. And yet for some reason, there's certain moments where you just feel stirred. I need to, I want to be generous. I want to help. How do you explain that? That might be your faith moving. I know for some of you, this might not be encouraging. It might be condemning. You're like, I haven't done that in a long time. I haven't felt doing anything for the longest time that I didn't naturally want to do. And let me encourage you, it could be, yeah, maybe your faith is dead. Or maybe, again, your faith is like my beta fish. My beta fish recently wasn't moving, wasn't moving at all. And I was like, he's dead. Got my net, got ready. And all of a sudden, I was like, wait a second. I just tapped the tank, nothing. Tapped the tank, nothing. One more time, boom, he just like bursts with energy and just starts swimming around. I was like, oh, thank God I didn't throw him away. Like, that would be terrible. But I realized, oh, he just needed a little tap. That's all he needed. And he kind of wakes up. And for a lot of us, that's our faith. Maybe your faith feels a little bit dead, hasn't been moving, hasn't been alive. 
So what you need the most is you need to tap it. You need to tap that thing. Maybe it's coming to worship on Sundays. That's the tapping. Maybe it's when you engage in the practices. That's the tapping. But whatever it is, that is not the sign your faith is alive. That's the way your faith becomes alive. You tap that thing. And sure, it might have been not moving for a while. It might have been seasons it's not moving. But keep tapping and see what God does. Because I promise you, what ends up happening for us is if you keep living by faith, living in a way that's so contrary to how you would normally live, but it's living according to the way God wants you to live, you know what happens after a while? All that information that you've been learning in church, it becomes transformation. Something forms in you. You start looking far different than what you normally would have been. People could see it. You can see it. And it looks different for every single person because everybody has a different starting point. And yet slowly something's happening in you. Craig Wamber, he's a scholar. He says it like this, quote, true saving faith by definition means that the spirit enters a person's life to begin conforming them to the likeness of Christ. This transformation, it cannot be quantified. It may be different for every person in detail and it regularly involves many fits and starts or forward and backward steps. But over time, it does result in changed living. And so as I invite the praise team up, can I just exhort our church? Is your faith alive? We're going to take a moment to pray and reflect, but that question, is your faith alive? Some of you might need a pause. You've been playing the cultural Christian game for a long time. And that's why your faith does not help you at all. In moments of crisis, in your daily life. Because it could be your faith, it's not living. And that should make us pause. It should make us repent. It should make us be honest. Like, yeah, this is what's going on. I'm a cultural, more cultural than I am Christian. But for some of us here, it might be, you know, your faith it might be alive. You just need a lot of tapping. And maybe what, what is it that you need tapping? What type of tapping causes your faith to be stirred? And take a moment to pause and consider that. So if I can invite our church to pause, consider our faith, and consider where you're at, and just having a, a moment of silence with the Lord,